For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, with the latest readout video from our Wednesday Wake Up newsletter, with thanks to all of you who made a donation to our channel last week, and with a hello to our viewers in Florida, and to everyone who's chilling out there, including those who don't want to be, who fall into two broad categories. Some of them are the people who are having trouble affording heating as the Northern Hemisphere winter closes in, and governments have done a splendid job of making vital energy expensive. But the other group are alarmists, whose hottest year ever parade seems to have been cancelled. In case you missed it, amid all the coverage of the climate crisis, with warming turning to heating to extreme heating, it seems there's been no boring old-fashioned temperature actually went up warming for nearly seven years now, since January of 2015. Or, to be more precise, no net warming. There was a temperature spike in 2020 because of an El Nino, as there was in 2016. But the best satellite data say that the ups and downs typical of real-world climate have left us no warmer now than before anyone had declared an emergency. And that seven-year figure for the pause is based on the University of Alabama at Huntsville data series. Another very credible set, the Hadcrut data out of Britain, say that the pause has instead been, what's this, eight years? How can it be? Isn't there a linear relationship between atmospheric CO2 and warming? No. At least not according to... What's that thing? The science. You know, the one where you test theories against actual evidence? Now, seven years, some may say, is not a trend. But if that's the case, it isn't either way. Not if it's warming, not if it's not. And if the simple alarmist, more CO2 means more warming, were correct, there would not be, there could not be, a temperature pause stretching out for seven years. And since there is one, we'd like to hear the explanation, or at least an acknowledgement. Meanwhile, in the make-believe world of politics, where the good party's policies are all gain for no pain, and vice versa for the baddies, Australia's opposition Labour Party leader finally coughed up a climate plan that, quote, will help to create jobs, cut power bills, and reduce emissions, end quote. Specifically, he promised to cut emissions by 43% by 2030, if they win the upcoming election, and yet, quote, electricity prices will fall from the current level by $275 for households by 2025 at the end of our first term, if we are successful, end quote. Yeah, if. We might also point out that if they succeed, they'll fail, because the only way to get people to stop using energy is to make it unaffordable or unavailable, in which case, yes, we suppose your energy bill would fall. But they said prices, not total spending. So, what's the magic trick to have cheap, scarce, available energy? Who knows? We mean that literally. There's an old rule, the origin of which we cannot now locate, that if enough people of intelligence and goodwill have looked for something long enough in a great many places and haven't found it, the chances are it's not there. So, where's the country, state, province, or even city that has managed this remarkable feat of saving us from the climate crisis without any pain? If you can't already name it, we don't believe that it's about to be you. And if you can, there's no need for you to hem and haw and then produce a brilliantly original plan. You just follow the leader. And now, a word from our sponsor. And that's you. Because at the Climate Discussion Nexus, we're dependent upon support from our viewers and our readers. Please go to our donate page, make a one-time pledge, or if you can, a monthly one. I'm not talking a lot of money though. If you've got it, we'll take it. 
$2 a month, $3, $5. That's the sustaining funding that we need to produce these videos on our newsletter. And now, back to me. And speaking of brilliant solutions to the climate crisis, the Daily Telegraph highlights a supposed victory also trumpeted by the New York Times. Quote, a Japanese town is recycling used adult diapers by turning them into small pellets that can be used as fuel, end quote. And it's apparently a big deal because those diapers are now about 10% of the waste in that town. Which seems to us to miss the main triumph, namely that Japan is rapidly depopulating altogether. And without people, you don't have man-made warming because dead men emit no greenhouse gases, or at least not many. It's a case of destroying the village in order to save it. And Japan, in fact, now has more adults in diapers than it does babies. And by 2030, it seems that a third of its population will be over 65. Even so, this solution only seems to be heating the public bath, not powering the rest of the economy. So let's not call it victory just yet. And let's also note that getting rid of people to save humanity is a plan that does have its critics. Prince William recently got himself into hot water for the superficially uncontroversial claim that rising population in Africa was putting pressure on the ecosystem. As Al Jazeera chortled, quote, experts critique Prince William's ideas on Africa population, end quote. And what experts say, case closed. Al Jazeera added, as if it were noteworthy, that people, quote, took to social media to share their frustration at the royal figure's sentiment, with some connecting the statement to eco-fascism, end quote, which altogether now, quote, has racist connotations. In short, black, brown, and marginalized people are blamed for overpopulation and consequently the environment's demise, end quote. Well, what about all the people who are blaming white people for emitting more greenhouse gases and for having done it longer? And in any case, Westerners do seem, like the Japanese, to be fixing the problem now by not having enough children to replace themselves, whereas in Africa, population has lately been rising from a surprisingly low 388 million in 1973. That's surprising because Africa is actually the world's second largest continent, despite the distortion of a Mercator map, to 1.3 billion today and a projected 4.3 billion by 2100, though if climate change kills all the crops and renders much of the earth uninhabitable, they might not make it. In this week's newsletter, we also report on National Geographic taking a break from beating the climate drum to warn that, quote, Europeans' butterflies are vanishing as small farms disappear, end quote. And we're glad to see that there's an environmental issue other than climate change. We're sorry to hear butterflies are so well adapted to grasslands that even reforestation can harm them, let alone urbanization or industrial monoculture. But it's interesting to reflect here that sometimes we don't want to let nature take its course entirely or spend so much time cussing CO2 for killing plants and everything else that we have no time for real issues like habitat. Even if we don't, like National Geographic, make sure we throw in the climate kitchen sink, saying, oh yeah, and grasslands are a great carbon sink too. Didn't those butterfly-killing forests used to be the great carbon sink? And while we're cussing things, let's not forget climate-destroying patriarchal science. Yep. Although the trash from COP26 has largely been swept away, and the ambitions, we should mention that the solution to climate change apparently was found there. Quote, the overrepresentation of white men in climate change decision-making processes is stifling for both the imagination and the implementation of transformative solutions, end quote. And yeah, I guess we'll concede that if Gustave Thunberg were a girl, nobody would have listened to her, especially not at some giant international climate gathering. But still, once you've noticed the pale patriarchal person problem, uh, surely all you have to do is say whatever the women of color would be advocating if only the UN climate movement were not such a closed shop. 
because, quote, when decision-making processes incorporate gender perspectives and meaningful participation by women, solutions are often more comprehensive and durable, end quote. See, it's easy, except the part where you find out what to do. Because as it turns out, there were a lot of women in NGO delegations to Glasgow, as there have been to other of these COP gatherings. So, what are their comprehensive and durable solutions? Well, same as Joseph Biden, Boris Johnson, and Justin Trudeau's for some reason, even though those guys are white men. Which is especially odd since apparently another major problem is that men like science, and that turns out to be as bad as denying it. Quote, Dr. Sherilyn McGregor of the University of Manchester argues that climate change has been represented both as a scientific problem and as a threat to security. Science and security have been traditionally male domains, while knowledge production and validation have been seen as the territory of a very narrow and male-centric set of knowers, end quote. Now, it's a bit weird to go on to complain that, quote, the participation of female scientists in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has gradually increased but remains low, with women making up just 32% of authors of a recent report, end quote. Because... If women make up a third of the authors, including the co-chair of the scientific panel, you'd think they could put forward the vital ideas we eagerly await. Which, in any case, predictably turn out to amount to communism, as usual. Quote, Unless the way our global leaders frame the climate crisis changes, we will continue to force women's participation to fit within very rigid sets of expertise, procedures, and diplomatic styles that do not lend themselves to creating radical global and systemic change, end quote just as some marginalized person called Greta Thunberg has also been insisting to, um, thunderous applause. So there it is. Women have spoken. All we need is radical, global, and systemic change. And never mind what kind. That's such a male question. So, we suppose, is pointing to the daily temperature records from the local agricultural station in Bathurst, New South Wales, and asking you to tell 1920 from 2020. So let's instead look at what the latest IPCC report really said about global greening. They don't go out of their way to draw attention to it, but buried in section 2.3.4.3.3, they concede that, quote, vegetation index data derived from satellites depicts increases in aspects of vegetation greenness, i.e. green leaf area and or mass, over the past four decades, end quote. Blast that plant-killing CO2 and the patriarchal knowledge it rode in on. Although curiously, courtesy of CO2Science.org, we hear that despite horrifying predictions of the negative impact of rising carbon dioxide levels on Africa, it's actually been good for agriculture and, quote, terrestrial ecosystem productivity, end quote. I think that means nature. And for those whose love of nature in all its manifestations includes a particular affection for places with a lot of plants and animals, and especially charismatic megafauna like lions and giraffes, and even perhaps their fellow humans, it's got to be good news. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, the butterflies and the hippos, I'm John Robson.